This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Soraya Korea, the Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Soraya, this may be the last time I get to call you the Chief Procurement Officer because, uh, as, as you know, you are retiring uh, I think if I'm right, as of, uh, is, I think officially it's July 31st, but your last day is Friday, July 30th, correct? That is correct. Well, first of all, congratulations on that decision. It's always a big one. And it's always sad when folks like yourself decide to, quote unquote, call it a career. But uh, let's let's just talk about that. What went into your decision to retire? Why now? Why not six months from now? Why not six months ago? And, and what comes next for you? I've always believed that a leader has to know when the time is right. And for me, I've been thinking about retirement, frankly, for the last year, but I didn't feel comfortable leaving while we were still in the throes of the pandemic and the lockdowns and those kinds of things. I wanted to make sure that I saw my folks through. And then we had an election and uh, we had a new administration coming in and I felt duty bound to be a part of that transition to help out, uh, bring on board you know, some of our political appointees here in the department, especially the secretary, who, as you know, I worked for before under uh, the previous previous Democratic administration, both at USCIS and here at headquarters. So I I really wanted to be here and, and support the transition. But I have been contemplating retirement for some time. I've been in service now for well over 40 years. In fact, it might be closer to 41 than 40. Um, and I've had a great career, an amazing career. And everything's in place. It's the right time to go. I have a, an excellent deputy. He's been working with me for the last two years. Our leadership team, most of the members of our leadership team have been in place for well over a year, some of them for several years. So from a succession planning, from a, a structural, organizational approach. It made perfect sense. And besides that, you know, you kind of leave at the top of your game, right? Our numbers are good. I got a 93% staffing level in the office of the chief procurement officer. Uh, I heard murmurings that I'm probably getting an A plus on the SBA scorecard. So, you know, the time is right. And I owe this to my family and to myself. And I also owe it to those who will succeed me. It's time to let somebody else take the reins. Let's talk about your career a little bit. You mentioned almost 41 years now. You started uh, this, I did not know this until I did some research, as a GS4 clerk typist, and now you are the leader of an acquisition workforce and acquisition uh, effort that uh, I think is of, of the, one of the most highly respected across government. What made you get into government in the first place? Was it a job? Did someone tell you? Did someone push you into it? Give, give me a little bit of background. So it's a little bit of both. I was looking for a job. That Literally, that's what happened. I wanted to work. And my father spent 39 plus years in federal service. And he kind of, you know, uh, he, he guided me to come into government. He didn't say, hey, this is what you should do. But he said, hey, you're looking for a job. It's a good career. Give it a try. If you don't like it, you know, you can do something else, right? So I started applying around and I applied for a couple of jobs. And at the time I was going to school at night and I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I still haven't figured that out, but I'll let you know when I do. But anyway, uh, I took a clerk typist job as a GS4 working for the General Services Administration Public Building Service. And it was a good job. I worked in a contracting office. I was going to school at night studying contracting. My father had been in procurement. And so I was exploring the career field to learn a little bit more about it. Ended up really liking it. And from there, I went to Department of Navy, working for Naval Sea Systems Command. 
And you know, what I always tell people about my career is I took a lot of risks. I, I did things a little bit differently than most. The job that I took at Navy was actually in a program office. So I was a contract specialist sitting in a program office supporting a program. And I always credit that job for instilling in me a passion and commitment for mission. What we did in the Office of Diving and Salvage is we pulled wreckage out of the water. One of the first projects that I worked on, I came in at the tail end of the uh, recovery operations for the Air Florida accident that happened here on the 14th Street Bridge. And the last project that I worked on when I was with the, the Naval Sea Systems Command was the recovery of the Space Shuttle Challenger. So those are experiences that, you know, I will never forget and I'm grateful for as painful as in, in many cases that they were. But from there, I went, I knew that from a career standpoint, I needed to become a contracting officer. I needed to actually work in a contracting office. And so I applied and was selected to work at the General Services Administration Federal Supply Schedule at the time, which is equivalent to the Federal Acquisition Service today. So I took that job, did that for a year and a half. And one of the things about my career that's notable also is that I do raise my hand for some of the not so popular projects. So I did a lot of special projects while I was there. I worked on federal supply schedules, but I also did a few special projects. But after about a year and a half, I, I was getting itchy feet. I wanted to get back into what I call more of that mission space, the things that I can really get behind. So on a whim, I applied to an open announcement at NASA, got selected on a phone interview, and I accepted the job on the phone interview. I didn't even know where I was going to be or who I was going to be. I mean, I knew the individual over the phone, but I had never seen the office. But I took the job, and I came to work at NASA headquarters. Had a great experience there. And some customers that I was working with there in the IT shop ended up going over to the Immigration and Naturalization Service to be the CIO to work on that operation in the Chief Information Officer's Office. And about two months after they got to INS, they gave me a call and invited me to come join at INS. And funny enough, I said, well, I don't know if I'm interested in working in procurement at INS. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We want you here with us in IT, helping us formulate our programs, our contracts, our requirements. So, you know, I, again, no stranger to taking a few risks. I really thought about it and said, why not? Let's give it a try. So I spent basically the next five years in IT at INS. From there, I went into finance, helping deploy a financial management system. And then we became the Department of Homeland Security. And I had the opportunity to actually leave INS and go work at another federal agency. I actually had a job offer, and it probably could have, could have led to um, senior executive service a little earlier. But the thought of being part of standing up a new department was just exciting to me. So I stayed at INS. I became part of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and I subsequently became the head of contracting there. And then I had no interest in becoming a senior executive. I never really thought about it until I sat in quite a few meetings with senior executives and learned a little bit more about what it is to be a senior executive. And I applied for the Office of Procurement Operations here in the CPO's office. I was selected. I was fortunate to be selected, and I grew that office from 60 individuals to 240 individuals, supporting multiple programs as we were standing up the Department of Homeland Security. And then I had the opportunity to be the, the deputy for management at USCIS, so I went and did that for about a year and a half. Then I became one of their associate directors, and then I was sitting there, and I was actually starting to think about retirement. I was three months away from retirement when I was offered the opportunity to be the chief procurement officer. And having had a career in acquisition, knowing the importance of, of this job, of being part of a mission support organization, 
I couldn't resist. And so, you know, I got to tell you, this has been the highlight of my career. I love this job. I've enjoyed everything I've done. Uh, the opportunity to influence the acquisition environment, to, to make sure that uh, we're guiding our procurement professionals here in the department with a strong mission focus while ensuring that we're still compliance with regulations. That, to me, was the opportunity of a lifetime, and I'm thrilled to have done it. What a great career in so many ways. I mean, I think when you go back and look at all the, the ins and outs and how things kind of wound up, I mean, when you look back now, and it's maybe it's easy to look back now, but was there any point in time where you said, one, I got to leave government, or two, did you have offers or did you say, well, you know, a lot of times you hear people say, I get frustrated with the slow pace and frustrated with the bureaucracy and frustrated with the frustration of being in government. I got to leave. Was there ever a time you thought about that? Yeah, you always think about it, but I never thought about it seriously. In fact, whenever I got frustrated, I said, well, okay, now what am I going to do to fix it? You know, because it's easy to whine and moan and groan. What are you going to do to fix it? Walking away is easy. Walking away from a problem, walking away from a situation is very easy. That's the easiest thing to do. Staying and trying to fix it that's the hard part. And staying and trying to fix it and sometimes, you know, maybe getting your butt kicked um, because people don't like the solution you're offering, that's hard. But I was willing to take those chances and I always tried to come to the table with solutions. Whatever frustrated me, I tried to find a way to fix it. Uh, I tried to get to the right people. That's why I sometimes held my hand up for some of the ugly projects, for the not so popular projects because Somebody has to do it, and why not me? Why not try it, you know? The worst that can happen is I might get it right, and somebody might recognize that, or I might not, and that's okay, too, as long as I know what I did wrong and I know how to fix it. So while, yeah, of course, there were days that I had frustrations and I would look at myself in the mirror and go, why am I doing this? Um, I always got up the next morning and came in with the same energy, enthusiasm um, to do the job, and make sure that I was serving the public trust in the best manner possible. I, like I said, I really uh, believe in the work that we do, and I believe there are better ways to do it, and it takes a little bit of courage, a little bit of tenacity, and sometimes a little bit of frustration, but we get the job done every day. And when I look at what our first responders do, our, our law enforcement officials here at the department, or whether it was INS, or NASA or GSA, when I think of the missions, you know, Social Security, Treasury, the impact that we have on the American public, it's very easy for me to, to, to be a part of this government and to say, I'm going to stick around and make it work. I think people recognize that passion in you. And I think that that's one of the hallmarks of not only your career, but also of the, the group you've built at the Homeland Security Department. Soraya, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Soraya Korea, the outgoing Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. My guest today is Soraya Korea, the outgoing Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Now, Soraya, this is an exit interview. You are not a quote-unquote CIO, nor work in a quote-unquote technology world, but we do know everything you do involves technology to a certain extent, whether it's just the computer on your desk or the acquisition closeout you're doing or what DHS is buying, which they do buy a, a lot of technology, among other things. 
I want to, we were talking about your career, how you got into government, starting as a GS4 clerk typist and how you went through a bunch of different agencies and, and were someone who took risks. And that's where I want to start because when we talk about your career, you, as long as I've known you uh, during your time at DHS, you've been clear on two things. We're going to try things. We're not always going to be successful, but when we're not successful, that's okay. And we're going to learn from it. So let's look back over your career. What are some of the things you are most proud of and, and, and where those risks came in? Probably what I'm most proud of is the people that I've worked with. I, and I have to say that sincerely, the team, not only the team that I have here in CPO, but in every organization that I've worked. I've always been surrounded by like-minded personnel, people who really wanted to do a good job. Sometimes they weren't willing to perhaps, you know, raise their hand or, or be as outspoken as, as I could be, as direct as I could be, but their, their, their heart was in it. They wanted to do the right things. And so, and I think that's what caused me to become a leader, that, that I saw people that were hesitating, even though they knew there was a better way. And I felt that I had the courage, the strength, and the willingness to stand up and say, okay, I think we know about the way. So what am I most proud of? I'm most proud of the teams that I've led and the teams that I've worked with. Uh, the many procurements that we have awarded that were not your average run-of-the-mill procurements, where we strategized and came up with new concepts of, of what we were trying to do or new approaches to how we were going to negotiate the contract or structure the contract. Even solicitations, you know, uh, awarding multiple contracts, not multiple award contracts, but multiple contracts from one solicitation, perhaps multiple contracts for different services. So I've done a lot of things like that. So what am I most proud of? I'm most proud of that I never lost sight of the entire procurement process from the very beginning, which is planning, developing the requirement, identifying the cost estimate, et cetera, to strategizing the procurement, to engaging with industry by doing market research, to the uh, solicitation of proposals, the evaluation of proposals, but then the most important part, award and then managing that contract, delivering success. I never lost sight of that. I've always looked at the entire process and I've always thought about and focused on the entire process. Procurements that I'm proud of, of course, I am very proud of pretty much every procurement that we've awarded, even the ones that were not successful, such as Flash. Because what we did with those procurements is we usually were trying something different or new. Maybe we made a few mistakes, uh, but we learned from them. We grab our lessons learned and we use them to train our people to make sure that we understand what we did what we could do better, and how we should do it better. And one of the things that I take great pride in is my relationship with industry and the relationship that I've cultivated with industry and academia and others, but especially with industry. I never feared talking to industry. I, when I was a contracting officer, I enjoyed talking to industry, whether it was doing market research or sitting down and talking to them about why they didn't win a particular opportunity or sitting post-award in a contract administration meeting, sometimes contentious because something wasn't going right, and figuring out how we were going to solve the problem. Because at the end of the day, that's what the partnership is about. Once we award that contract, it's a partnership, and we got to deliver success. So I would say those are the things that I'm proud of, those relationships that I cultivated, that I built. Yes, many of the procurements that we awarded, but more importantly, the relationship, the relationship with the program office, with legal counsel, with industry, with whoever had to be involved in that procurement, I always focused on those relationships and how we could work together, how we could collaborate and understand one another and deliver success for the agency. 
is that part of the reason why you believe you were able to take some of those risks because you had that relationship with legal, with industry, with whomever to say, Hey, we're going to try something new. We're going to give it, there's no reason not to try it. It may not work. It may work or may some, a piece of it may work. And then how did you go about building those relationships? Because I think it's easy to say I had relationships, but there's a difference between I know Joe or Mary in the hall and I sit down with Joe or Mary and have a conversation weekly, every other week, whatever the timing is. One of the things that, that I believe is important for a leader to understand, and, and I always cultivated this, was I have to understand the other person's perspective. Whether I'm negotiating a contract or just bartering with someone about hiring a person, you have to understand the other person's perspective. And that's one thing that I think I've done well. That doesn't mean that I will always agree with you, but it does mean that I try to put myself in your shoes and understand why you see things the way you do, as opposed to just saying, well, what's wrong with them? They're wrong, what have you. I don't, I don't immediately jump to the conclusion that someone is wrong. I jump to the conclusion that there might be a reason why they're thinking that way or why they're hesitating or why they're not comfortable. So what I've tried to do in, in and I started this very early in my career. I probably did this when I was a GS4. I just don't remember that far back. But I always, whenever I wanted to do something or try something new, I would sit down and explain why I wanted to do something, right? Why I thought this was a good idea, how I looked at it. And, and I would always ask the question, what do you think? How does this look to you? Do you have concerns? And I would take into consideration what they to say. One of the reasons I think that I've had good relationships, especially with the attorneys, is, and I'm not going to tell you that we always agree. We can agree to disagree. What we have is a mutual respect because I was willing to listen. I was willing to ask, well, what is the concern that you have? And sometimes I even went to them and said, here's what I want to do. Get me there. Help me. That's what causes people to want to get in your corner. And it's about credibility and respect. And it's about not throwing people under the bus when it doesn't work. And I think you know that one of my tenets has always been, when it works, y'all can take the credit. I'm happy to give the credit to others when it works. But if it doesn't work, I'll take responsibility for that. I'll step up and say, my bad. And I think that's about credibility. It's about people feel comfortable taking a risk with you because they know you're going to be with them and that you're gonna support them and be a good partner in the relationship. And that's what I've strived for. I've always strived uh, to, to make sure that people understood, I'm in it with you. We're gonna do this together. And uh, this thing goes wrong, well, I'll step up to the plate. It's not a problem. So that's, that's what relationships are all about. It's about building trust. It's about having credibility. It's about doing what you said you were gonna do. And if you can't do what you said you're gonna do, you tell them. You tell them and you tell them well in advance and don't let them get themselves in trouble. And I think that's what I've done not only in my federal government relationships here with my colleagues, whether they were my counterparts, the CXOs, the CIO, the CFO, et cetera, or my employees or my leaders, but also with the industry, with the people that support us, that work with us. When I've said to industry, we're going to do X, Y, Z, I step up to the plate and do X, Y, Z. And if I can't do it, I try to be honest with them and say, here's why I can't do it. So I think that's, that's what it's all about. Trust. You brought up the flash procurement, the, the, the failed agile attempt. And I think one of the things that 
stood out to the community is, is you did step up and, and, and give your folks top cover. You did take full responsibility. Hey, that was my fault. We tried something that didn't work and that's my fault. What did you learn from that experience? How, has you, how have you applied that? And, and maybe this is, I should, should wait on this question, but what can others take from that experience? Other acquisition professionals, other executives, whether they're in the acquisition world, like you are as a chief procurement officer or CIOs or chief human capital officers or whomever. We learned a lot of lessons from that. You know, we, we were aggressive and we were trying to do a really big procurement and we didn't use the down select processes perfectly. I'm not sure that our team always understood the objectives and the risks that they could take. And that's, I think that's a very fair statement to make. I don't think any member of the team would disagree with that statement. I'm not sure that, that I did a really great job, let me say it that way, great job of making sure they understood here are some of the risks that you can take. Here are some of the corners, I don't want to say corners that you can cut, but the things where we could change things. So we took an agile approach to doing the procurement, and then we fell into a waterfall documentation process that just turned into a protest nightmare. And one of the things that that really happened, you know, we probably could have continued to fight the protest, and maybe we would have won. But I'm not going to do multiple rounds of protests, and I was never going to cave. Uh, On multiple award contracts, sometimes vendors protest sometimes, not always. Sometimes vendors protest because they think, hey, it's a multiple award. They'll just give me a contract to get rid of me in the protest. Soraya doesn't bend that way. I'm going to do the right thing for the agency. I'm going to protect the integrity of the agency. If we said we're only going to award to a particular number of companies or a particular group of companies, then that's what we're going to do. And I'm not going to bend on that unless we did something wrong. So on Flash, what we learned was we got to think about that strategy a little bit more closely. And we need to bring industry in much earlier. And so what you'll find is if you look at a lot of the major procurements that we've been working on over the last few years, Data Center, First Source 3, and others, that's what we've been doing. We've been engaging industry very early and often, sharing with them, here's what we're thinking about doing, here's what we're looking at, here's what the schedule is, here are the documents that we're gonna give you, here's a statement of work, eval criteria, et cetera. I think we didn't do enough of that in in Flash. We did some of that, but not enough of that. We didn't look at the entire process. We focused on the solicitation, evaluation, but we didn't focus on the documentation piece. Well, that's what my Procurement Innovation Lab has done really well. We've come up with better approaches to how we document, how we engage with industry, et cetera, and we've used the down-select process more efficiently than we did on Flash. But the most important lesson that we learned in Flash, I believe, as a leader, is that when you step up and support your people, they will take risks. They will support you. And they will stand with you. It would have been easy for me to just, you know, kind of not say anything and say the CEO didn't do that or this person didn't do that. Yeah, I could have pointed to all those things. No, no. My responsibility. I said, we're going to do this and we're going to try it. And you know what? It doesn't matter what those little missteps might have been. At the end of the day, I was responsible for guiding and directing the process. And it didn't work out. But you know what? I also made sure that people understood failure can lead to success. Failure is not that bad a word. When you fail because you're trying to do something better, different, more efficiently, you're probably going to learn. 
And that's what most successful people will tell you. Failure because you were too lazy to do something, that's a whole different topic. So, and, and I use the word failure in government because people don't like that word, right? It's scary. Somebody, you know, the bad, the, the failure gods will come and get you or whatever. I use the word failure because it is a strong word. And I want people to understand we're going to stub our toe. We're going to make mistakes. It's okay when you're trying to do something better, more efficient, more effective. And as long as you have a plan B, a way to get yourself out of it and fix the problem and learn from it. So to me, that, that was the big lesson of flashes. Stand with your people, support them. Make sure that as the leader of the organization, you take responsibility for what happens and make sure your people know that you're going to take responsibility. Sarai, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest is Sarai Kriya, the outgoing chief procurement officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Soraya Korea, the outgoing chief procurement officer at the Homeland Security Department. Soraya, I want to go back to something you said last segment. I, I think that last piece about Flash was really important because sometimes people get caught up in the risk aversion of procurement. And it also opens the door to, to a discussion that I know you can't have around First Source 3, so let, let me broaden the, the step back since you're in the middle, I think, of the acquisition and it's sensitive, and I know there's only so much you can say. When it comes to these types of multiple work contracts, and again, first source three aside, but GSA is having a similar problem. There's other agencies that have these problems. What is your position on saying, if you are minimally qualified, we're going to let you on the contract and not worry about only having 20 people or 30 companies or, or, or some limited number? I think the unpriced schedule is Section 876. I think there's a lot of pieces and parts that we can play into this. But but one of the ways to solve this problem with procurement is is to spend less time at the master contract level and more time at the task order level. Is that the direction that, in, in many ways, you think government should go in or is going in? Where do you stand on, on that kind of broad issue? I have always been of the position whether it's a multiple award contract or, or a single award, our government deserves, is entitled to, and should get the very best value. We should get the most talented, most capable, the best products at the best prices. Notice I said best prices, not necessarily lowest price, because in value, in obtaining value, sometimes you're going to be willing to pay a slightly higher price to achieve a certain level of value. So even on these multiple award contracts, you should strive to get the very best on those multiple award contracts so that you don't find problems, if you will, or, or find yourself in bad situations when you are at the task order level. I know that there are those that believe, you know, just go ahead, get yourself 50, 100 companies, whatever, and then we'll just negotiate at the task order level. That's okay. I, I think they call that GSA schedule. I mean, the GSA schedule program works beautifully. I love that program. I, I'm a user of it. I've been using it my entire career, and I'm an advocate of that program. But when we're doing these agency-specific contracts, whether they're a strategically sourced contract or a best-in-class, I do think we should be striving for those that are the best, whether they're the best small businesses, women-owned businesses, large business, mid-tier, whatever, IT, whatever that is, we should be striving to get the very best so that when we get to that task order negotiation, we're focusing on the solution 
and not trying to figure out if the company is truly qualified or capable of doing the work. We should be focusing on the solution and the cost of that solution, the value of that solution. Um, so that's my position. That has always been my position. Those who know me know that it's not that I'm opposed to LPTA or opposed to having multiple contractors. I just think you got to buy the, the solution. You write the contract to get the solution that you need to achieve the mission. I'm not sure you answered the question. So I'll, <laughs> and I understand that it's not an easy question to answer. I guess I'll go back to, so we know, for instance, has DHS looked at the unpriced schedule? So I'm going to answer the question very directly. Soraya Correa's philosophy is that I think we put too much emphasis on price, especially on these big multiple awards. We don't know what the heck this stuff is going to cost in another year. We really don't, right? When you think of IT and, and the pace that technology moves in and, and the qualifications requirements for the personnel, I mean, who knew 10 years ago that cyber security jobs were going to get you know really high rates because it's a big issue in government, a big issue in industry, right? So we don't really know what these things are going to cost. And I think we, we do put too much emphasis on pricing. I think it's more important to pick the best qualified companies. And by the way, uh, most companies, if they're really qualified, they're going to give you a good price. They're going to give you the right price for what you're asking them to do. And that's what we get paid for, by the way. We get paid to negotiate those contracts. So I do think we place a little bit too much emphasis on price. I'm not opposed to unpriced schedules. The FAR doesn't always give us that maximum flexibility that I would like to have. Um, so to answer your question directly, no, I'm not opposed to unpriced schedules. I'm okay with it. It doesn't bother me. Did I, was that a direct enough answer for you? <laughs> no, no, that's good. I appreciate that. Uh, and, th and that actually, it's a great segue to the broader discussion that I want to go down, which is that innovation piece, that, that understanding of, of what, where things can go within the federal acquisition world. And I want to start with the Procurement Innovation Lab, the pill. That's another crowning achievement, I think, of, of your time at DHS. What types of innovations did you start at the pill that really have you seen progress across government? I know you all have done the boot camp, so you really try to spread the word. Walk me through some of the innovations that came from the pill and, and how they can be offered up across government. So first and foremost, what I think is really important is um, to understand my thinking about the pill. The Procurement Innovation Lab, when we stood it up back in March of 2015, shortly after I came in, my, my thought process there was, we don't have time to change regulations. It takes a long time to, you know, to change the rules of engagement, especially the federal acquisition regulation, et cetera. And plus, you got to get agreement from a lot of people who may or may not understand what we're trying to do. So the guidance that I gave the pill is working within the four corners of the farm. Let's read this document and let's interpret it. Let's look at what it really says. And what are the flexibilities that are there? Because in my career and the times that I was working as a contracting officer, there were very few things that I couldn't do, right? In other words, it didn't say I couldn't do a down-select process. It didn't say that I couldn't talk to a vendor. In fact, that's one of my favorite myths that I'm always out there busting when people say, you can't talk to a vendor. The FAR doesn't tell you that. FAR never says that you can't talk to a vendor. What the FAR says is you can't give an unfair competitive advantage to one vendor over another. That's a whole different thing. So that was my guidance to the Procurement Innovation Lab. You're not here trying to change the regulations. If you think of something that we should do, that's great. Toss it over to our policy folks. But let's focus on working within the four corners of the FAR 
and interpreting the language in the FAR to find the right flexibilities and, and, and determine how we can guide and teach our people to better interpret the FAR and better use the regulations in our favor to support the mission of the department. So that has been our guiding principle. So what we've done is really built innovations around how we use the flexibilities in the FAR. So the example I give you is the down select process. Um, the down select process is part of the FAR. It's there, it's been there. You could do voluntary or you could do mandatory down select or what people like to call a go, no go factor. What we've done is taken it to the next level and said, well, you could do a multi-phase down select so that you are continually down selecting so that you get the vendors that are not qualified or not likely to receive award Let's get them out of the process as early so they can go off and do other things. Because here's the thing, it costs industry money to bid on contracts, right? So let's not make them waste their time because that's what leads to frustration, I think, leads to frustrations and protests. The other thing that we did was about how we communicate with vendors, how we communicate with vendors pre-solicitation, during the solicitation, and as we're evaluating proposals, as we engage in discussions, as we negotiate the contracts, we changed that whole dynamic. We also looked at how we evaluate proposals, right? Whether you assign you know, color ratings or adjectival ratings. How about we talk about confidence levels? You know, high, medium, low. We so these are the kinds of innovations that we came up with. I mean, I, I got a laundry list, but I don't want to give away the whole pill boot camp. But what we did was really focus on doing things differently, taking certain risks. And we did this working in conjunction not only with the contracting officer, but the legal counsel, and the program officials, and industry. We always invited industry in, or mostly we invited industry in, to give us feedback. And in conjunction with standing up the Procurement Innovation Lab, what I also did was started those reverse industry days, where I invited industry in to tell us, educate us on their business processes. What do they think about? How do they perceive what we do? How do they act and react to what we do? And what should we be doing better? And our audience is our acquisition professionals, whether they're in IT, uh, S&T, CWMB, whatever, you name the organization. Most of the people that go to these things are actually program managers and program analysts. The contracting professionals participate as well, but the largest percentage comes from our program managers and they learn so much from industry and they get a better understanding of what industry is looking for, how industry is going to act and react to the things we ask for. So sorry, sorry let me let me let me jump in real quick because on reverse industry days, again, I've heard two things about them that I wanted you just to give you an opportunity to address to address. The first is they're great, we love them, but and that's the second piece. So you've gotten great reaction from industry. We're glad they do it. We're glad other people, IRS, others have followed suit. The concern I've heard from industry is, but they don't really listen. We tell them, we explain to them how it impacts us, that, that this is how we bid on something. But it's, is it more for show than for substance? And I, I see you smiling. People can't see you there, but, but I'm sure you've heard that too then. So what's your reaction when, when people, when industry complains that you, you, it's a more for show than for substance? One thing we have to remember. Industry is comprised of human beings, just as the federal government. And we tend to complain about what we see and we tend to generalize. So I'm going to answer that question by giving you an example of something I heard when I first arrived 
as the chief procurement officer of the department. And then when I looked at the statistics, I said, well, that's not true. I was told that the Department of Homeland Security has the most IT protests in the federal government, that everything we do in IT gets protests. Pretty much everything is what they said, right? So then I went and ran the statistics. And I found out that less than 1% of our IT procurements were being protested at the time. And of those IT procurements that were protested, we were winning 93, winning the protest 93% of the time. People tend to comment based on their little area and then they'll generalize it. So what I am saying is we do listen and, and, and people do hear. The feedback that we get from our program managers, our program analysts is phenomenal. And here's the other thing I'd say, if we weren't listening, we probably wouldn't have as many industry engagements pre-solicitation as we do today. We have quite a few because we've been listening to the industry. We wouldn't be publishing our procurement schedules and updating them to industry if we weren't listening. What, what you hear from some of these folks is about their particular area. If they're dealing with a particular segment or group of offices, that maybe that group doesn't feel comfortable taking those risks. And so the reaction is, well, they didn't hear us. Well, no, it's that not everybody is going to be willing to take the same risk. Not everybody's going to be comfortable having a conversation with the industry. Not everyone is a Soraya or a procurement innovation lab. And here's the thing. I'm not going to force it down people's throat. You do not force innovation. You invite innovation. You support it. You nurture it. You invite it. But you don't force it. The moment you force it, it's not innovation anymore. So when I hear those comments about, oh, the reverse industry days are for show, no, they're not. It's just that not everyone is going to have the same reaction to the information you gave them. Not everyone is going to step up and do things the way you're suggesting or try some of the things that you're asking them to try. And so what you got to do is you got to work with people like myself, uh, people like my colleagues out there, the senior procurement executives and the heads of contracting to invite them to say, hey, I'm not seeing you do these things. You know, we, we had a reverse industry day. We talked about debriefings and we thought this was a good idea, but we're not seeing you guys do that. Have that conversation. Come on in and talk. But don't, you know, don't go behind the scenes and go, oh, we're not listening. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, we're and then turn around and come to my reverse industry day and tell me how I do things better. Trust. I think your point is well taken that everyone is looking at from their own perspective that, well, we, we suggested A and she didn't do A, so therefore these don't work. So, so I do appreciate it. Soraya, on that note, let's take a quick break. My guest is Soraya Kriya, the outgoing Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Soraya Korea, the outgoing Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. What is on the to-do list for the next Chief Procurement Officer at DHS? So actually, I'm not leaving them a to-do list. I, I, I won't do that. I won't do that. I think each Chief Procurement Officer has to come into this job, look at the landscape, look at what's been done by their predecessors, and decide what they do next. What is their goal, their objective, their vision? and then communicate that to the team. Okay, well, if there's no to-do list, and I get that, then 
if you could change one or two things in federal procurement, how about that question? What would you like want to change? And, and I will preface that with, please don't go back to relationships and everyone should have a great relationship because you said it earlier and I'll go throw your words back at you. We are humans after all, and we have our own faults that, that come into those relationship building. But, but if there's a process change, an acquisition change, some sort of regulation change, what would you like to see? So there's a couple of things that I'd like to see. I'd like to see far more flexibilities, and I didn't mean to use the word FAR, uh, more flexibilities introduced into the FAR. Things like other transaction authority, commercial solutions opening pilot, those are things that should be made permanent and accessible to the agencies. We have to find ways to be a little bit more innovative, be a little bit more aggressive in awarding our contracts, and be a little bit more inviting to those innovative companies, those organizations that are out there and have a really good idea that maybe we should try and test. So that's what I want to see. I want to see more innovation, more flexibility in the federal acquisition regulation. The second thing that I would like to see done differently is let's not write a regulation every time one person does something wrong. That's a bad habit. We do that. We, we, and, and we do that across government, and I've seen it, even industry does it, and some of the larger bureaucracies do this. We tend to try to correct what one person did by writing a rule for everybody else. How about you just chastise the person that screwed it up, provide training for others so they don't screw it up, and let's not write a bunch of rules around it, because that's how we bog ourselves down in rules. And then the third thing, I really think that the Office of Federal Procurement Policy needs to look at, number one, the organizational structure that we place our procurement communities in. It's all over the map in the federal government. Sometimes they report to the CFO, sometimes they report to admin or whatever. I really think there should be a little bit more consistency across government in terms of how we how we uh, uh, look at senior procurement executive or the equivalent of the chief procurement officer, how we staff them, how we organize them, and the expectations that we have of them. I'd like to see a little bit more consistency in that, especially amongst the larger agencies like the 24 CFO Act agencies. And of course, that then leads to consistency in how we train and develop and grow these individuals. And then last but not least, I really want to see something being done with the protest process. And let me explain what I mean by that. I am a firm believer in the protest process. I think companies should have that opportunity to come in and challenge the government. That said, when I watch us go into this vicious cycle of just constantly being protested and, and people just challenging over and over the same issue or, or nitpicking or coming at you with the same question over and over and over again, we're wasting money. We're wasting taxpayer dollars on that. It can't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. There has to be a beginning and an end to the process. We can't be wrapped up in protest for the next two to three years. That's inefficient. That's ineffective. So there are the things that I, I would like to fix. And I got a long list, right? Those are the tough ones. Sorry, Korea. Let me first thank you for your time today. And of course, thank you for your service to the country. You are the outgoing Chief Procurement Officer at the Homeland Security Department. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much again for your for all your help over the years. Thank you so much, Jason. I've enjoyed uh, the, the privilege and the honor of being the Chief Procurement Officer of this department. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.